Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 5. The book of Romans, chapter 5. And we'll begin reading with verse 1 and studying there. In our lesson tonight, there will probably be some overlapping of the thoughts, because that's really what you find in this fifth chapter. One thing hinges on another, and one thing falls back upon another section so that you'll have uh, several things here that will overlap in their uh, verses of Scripture as we study them. Now, in the fourth chapter, the last verse told us that we were that Christ was delivered for offenses and raised for our justification. And Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says this then, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several therefores in the Scripture. In fact, we have three very important ones in the, the book of Romans. This is the first one that we find gives us a real definite connection. This word, therefore, would include all that is written in the previous four chapters. Therefore, being justified by faith. And then, when you come to chapter 8, verse 1, you have another one. And it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that, therefore, connects you with all the previous seven chapters of Romans. You get to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, you have another one. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And that connects you with all the previous eleven chapters. So each time those therefores overlap all of the book going right back to the first chapter. Romans 12.1 would include all the mercies of God found in chapters 11 all the way back to chapter 1 because the mercies of God for our salvation are brought out in all of those 11 chapters. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, therefore, uh, There is therefore now no condemnation. That would include how the proof of the fact that being justified by faith and even back to to chapter 1, that there's no condemnation for those of us then who are in Christ Jesus. So this one, Romans 5 verse 1, takes us back and includes all the first four chapters. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. So Paul writes it that way and overlaps in his teaching. Now then, in the first five verses, there are the assets of the believer. What do we have? What do we possess? What are our assets? First of all, in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the peace that He has made for us. And He's made peace with us, and therefore we have the peace that Christ has made. And then in verse 2, it says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This shows us a confidence in our acceptance. We're accepted. We're in, we're, we have access by faith into this grace and we stand there and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is a great confidence, isn't it? And this confidence comes because of our new relationship with the Lord. What is our relationship? 
We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We stand in the grace of God. We have access by faith. And all of these things show us a new relationship. Before we were condemned. Before we were not justified. Before we had no peace with God. Before we were not, uh, did not have the grace of God. Before we did not have faith. And now we have all of this going for us. No wonder there's great confidence in our acceptance. And then, in verse 2 also, it shows us the certainty of hope. It says, we rejoice and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word hope in the New Testament, or in the Bible, is not hope like you and I would say today, I hope that I can do thus and so or get a certain thing. We may or may not. But hope in the Bible not only means uh, that we desire it, but we expect it as well because God has promised it. You see the difference? In other words, there's an assurance of hope. There's a certainty of hope. It's not something that we hope for that we may not possess, but it's something that we desire and expect because God has promised. And that's the meaning of the word hope in the Bible. And this hope, verses 2 through 4, some of our assets continuing, uh, produces joy, it produces patience, it produces a mature nature or character, and it also brings us back to a, a new hope again. It, it comes back to hope. Let's see how it does this. Notice. Now let's progress from verse 2 through verse 4. It says this in the last part of verse 2, And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, what does this hope do, this certainty of hope? It produces joy. And not only so, but we also glory. We glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulations worketh patience. It works patience. And patience experience. And experience, what does it come back to? to? It comes back again to hope, doesn't it? And hope maketh not ashamed. The first part of verse 5. Let's stop there. So you see how it comes because we rejoice in hope of the glory of God and then these experimental things. In other words, what hope produces, this hope of the glory of God produces joy, it produces uh, patience, it produces uh, courage and faith and uh, it produces a mature character, helps us to grow in grace. Patience experience and experience hope. It comes back to the very same thing. And hope maketh not ashamed. Now then, if you look at verse 5, we'll find the, another one of our assets is that the love of God is in our hearts. God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. It says, and hope Make it not ashamed for this reason, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Hope makes not ashamed, because God's love is shed abroad in our hearts. 
It's shed abroad by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. What it means simply is this, that we do not naturally have the love of God. In fact, if you read the first four chapters, and especially the first three, you'll find that our uh, mouth was an open sepulchre. There was none righteous, no, not one. The poison of asp was under our lips. We talked bad. We did bad. We were evil. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There was no love there, was there? Not naturally, that love is not there. And aren't we glad that God has given us something that is unnatural, that is above our natural, sinful, carnal nature, and He shed abroad His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. We would not love one another. We would not love God. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. We would not love God apart from this. We would not love one another that we're told to do apart from this, this divine shedding abroad of love in our hearts. We would rejoice in the other fellow's downfall. Naturally. But see, we're not like that anymore. Because God has given us something above and beyond that. Now then, I'm going to get pretty close to home with this statement. And I know it to be true. I know it to be true not only from studying, but I know it to be true from experience. And I believe if you'll be honest with yourself, you'll admit it. Sometimes when we're not living, when we're not feeling the divine leadership of the Holy Spirit in our feelings toward one another, if the other fellow has a tragedy or has something bad happen to us, that old carnal nature laughs about it. You ever thought about it? Even to the point of when you hear a death of someone, someone, you're glad that it wasn't you is what has happened. From the carnal nature and the, uh, that old sinful nature within you, every once in a while, when something bad happens to the other fellow, you're thankful that it's not you, and you kind of laugh about what's happened to him. But now then, when you, when you ask God to, to guide your feelings then you realize that God has shed a love in your heart to wherein He tells us to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep and bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But you see, that old sinful nature is still there and every once in a while, if you're not careful, when the other fellow has a great tragedy, you might even grin or laugh about it. Have you ever seen uh, people do that? Sure you have. You don't want to do that. You look at yourself when, when the announcement comes to you and all of a sudden you say, well, my goodness, why did I have such an expression when a terrible thing has happened? Because we were not thinking. All that was in our mind was that it didn't happen to us and that old carnal nature made us rejoice in the fact that it was not me, it was the other guy. It's there, whether we want to admit it or not. And the only way that we can have a love that is, that is really genuine and true is the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. 
which is given unto us. And then we can do like Paul says. He tells us to bear one another's burdens. The Bible tells us uh, to comfort the others with the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. When we begin to minister in spiritual things to other people, we have to put ourselves in the same place and ask God to help us to share some of their same sorrows and their feelings as, as if they were our own. If, if some man loses his uh, a son or daughter, some family, mother and dad, lose their son or daughter, until we put ourselves in their place and say, what if that was my son or my daughter? We cannot have the sympathy and the feeling that we would have unless we do that. But see, we ought to immediately, when some great, when some tragic thing, some terrible thing happens to someone else, in order to sympathize with them properly, we ought to immediately say, now what if that was my son? Or what if that was my daughter? What if that were my husband? Or my wife? Or my father? Or my mother? And then, by doing that, we can come into a close relationship with their feelings and we can pray for them and we can love them and we can sympathize with them and we can ask God to give them the comforting of the Holy Spirit. But unless we put ourselves there close, we cannot do that. And that's why we need to do that. Because we're taught to do it in the Word, aren't we? We're taught to do it. And that's why we need to put ourselves there. So when the other fellow has a tragedy, let's not let that carnal nature laugh about it. Let's let our spiritual nature share in his sorrow. When he has a great blessing, let's not uh, be jealous because he is blessed and we're not, but let's joy with him in his blessing and in the, in, in the thing that God has done for him. So let's learn to do that. So I believe that gives us some of the assets of the believer. Now then, to show you some of the results of justification, we're going to have to uh, go back and take these five verses and then progress on down to verse 11 because I want to show you seven results of justification. First of all, let's notice verse 1. We've already uh, remarked on it, peace with God. That's a result of justification. That's not only an asset that we have, but it's a result of justification. It's not just peace of mind or not peace with man, but it's peace with God through the death of Christ. We might say, well, a man, we have peace of mind. We might say we have peace with other uh, men. But this is a peace with God that comes as a result of Christ's death for us. He's made us at peace with God, wherein before we were at enmity with God. That's the first result of justification. The second one is in verse 2, access to God. And this access is by faith, and it's into His grace wherein we stand. We have access. That means we can go into God's presence. We can go into God's presence through Christ, who is our mediator. And this enables us to meet God and to uh, meet in the presence of God. We couldn't do that before, could we? But now we can. This is a result of justification. Can the sinner approach a holy God? No, not apart from Christ. 
You see? So this is another result of justification. And then again, assurance of heavenly glory. You find that in verse 2. It says, Rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have an assurance of heavenly glory. We're looking for that blessed hope. We're looking for the time that we shall be glorified. God already sees us that way, but we're looking forward to that time. So this is the third thing of justification. Peace with God, access to God, assurance of heavenly glory. And then we've already remarked on this, and that's in verse 5, recipients of God's love. God has loved us while we were yet sinners, and he's also given us his love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Why did God love us, and how was it that he loved us? We're told in verse 8, but God commendeth his love. He commendeth his love toward us. When we were good? No. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commended it. He commended his love, not because we were lovely, not because we loved him back, not because we were deserving, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we're recipients of God's love. We receive God's love because we're, and, and yet we're unworthy of it. Now then, this is new ground we'll be breaking because we've overlapped again. Now then, look at verse 9. There is no wrath to fear. This is another result of justification. This is the fifth one. No wrath to fear. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. The believer has no wrath to fear. You and I might have fear, but... But the Bible says perfect love casteth out fear. If we really love the Lord and love Him because of that love that's shed abroad in our hearts and really put our faith as it should be, we will not fear the wrath. Why will we not fear it? Because Christ has already suffered the wrath of God, the judgment of God for our sins. And we'll not fear it, but we'll be thankful that we've been exempt from it. We'll be grateful that he has already borne the wrath and the judgment of God for us. And that's what we have to understand, that there is no wrath for us to fear. We have fled to Christ for a refuge. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And we have fled from the wrath to come. We fled to Christ, and he's our refuge. And when we have come to him, the more we have our faith fixed in Him, the less we will fear anything of the future, whatever it may be. The more we believe that Christ fully uh, paid the price for our salvation, the more that we can understand that He's exempt us from that great judgment. You know, there's a lot of people go through this life fearing that one day they shall, that the wrath of God will be poured out. Now then, we could get ourselves into that state of mind. We could let our faith so be so weak as not to believe the Word of God, and then we would fear that judgment if we were weak in faith. But then, if God would give you exactly what He intends for us to have, Jesus said, Verily, verily, listen very carefully, John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you know that word verily means truly, 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 Jesus could have said it once and it would have been enough. Jesus didn't even have to prefix all of this with a verily, with one verily or truly. 
But he said, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. If that wouldn't give us assurance of no fear of wrath to come, Paul says in eight, Romans 8, verse 1, we've already studied some of it, the therefores, the three therefores. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So you see, the fear of wrath, no fear of wrath. And then we find something else quickly as we look at it. Uh, a complete salvation in verse 10. It says, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is a complete salvation. When we were enemies, we were reconciled by Christ's death. Reconciled to God. Brought back to God. Brought in favor with God. Made at peace with God through the death of His Son. Brought back into fellowship with God. Brought back into a relationship of love and of unity and of harmony. Instead of being a sinner cast out from God's presence, Instead of being an enemy, we're no longer... When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And being reconciled, notice how complete it is. We shall be much more being reconciled. That's already done. We shall be saved by His life. What does it mean, we shall be saved? I thought we were saved by His death. We were. And we were reconciled to God by His death. But being saved by His life means this, that... That He has guaranteed our complete salvation by the fact that He is risen and is living. And as long as Christ lives, it's a full guarantee that our salvation will be complete. You know, the only way you and I could perish is if Jesus were to perish, according to this teaching. We're saved by His life. If we were reconciled by His death and because He is risen... He says he guarantees that we're saved by his life. You know what the devil ha would have to do to destroy one of those that's in Christ? The Bible says, when Christ, who is our life, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. What would the devil have to do? He'd have to destroy Jesus to destroy you. Because Christ is our life, the Bible states. As long as Jesus lives, you're going to live. As long as Jesus uh, is safe in the Father's presence. As long as Satan could not conquer God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, he could not conquer you. He could not condemn you. He could not enslave you. Because we're standing as in him. And that's what we have to remember. So it's a complete salvation. You afraid the devil's going to get you? I don't think so. You read Colossians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3, and the Bible says this, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And he says, If ye then be risen with Christ. That's what we're to seek. And he says, Set your affection on things above, not on things of, on the earth. For you are dead, 
you're dead as far as the old sins are concerned. You're dead as far as the old man and old life is concerned. As far as all of your sins, we're dead to sin. And your life, I thought I was dead. No, your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where your life is today. It's hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Where's your life now? You say, well, it's here on the earth. No, it's really hid with Christ in God. It's up there. You say, well, I'm living here. Yes, but it's secured by him being up there. You see that? It's hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, where is he? He's in the presence of God. When he shall appear, then you're going to appear with him in glory. It doesn't say, then, sh then might you appear with him, or maybe you'll appear with him, but then shall ye appear with him in glory. Aren't you glad there's some assurance to God's word? You know, I always hated things that were doubtful. I hate, I hate for a per person to say to me, maybe I'll do so and so. Or, uh, well, uh, there's an if, if this or that. And make so many conditions and so many ifs and ands and buts and maybes and forthwiths and etc. I don't like that. I like for a person to say, I will or I will not. You know, And that, that's what the Lord says to us. Paul says we conclude certain things. We conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. We had that in Romans chapter 3, didn't we? <coughs> God comes to some conclusions in His Word. He concludes that we're saved completely by Christ's death on the cross, reconciled to God, and guaranteed by the fact that Christ is living and ever lives to make intercession for all that come unto God by Him. If you read in Hebrews... In the seventh chapter, it says, let me read verse 24 and 25. It says, But this man, Christ, because he hath, because he continueth ever, Christ continues ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. And it's because he has an unchangeable priesthood, and because he continueth ever, now look, wherefore, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. We come to God by him for salvation. And how is it that he can save us to the uttermost? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So the reason he saves us to the uttermost is because he's ever living. And because any accusation, any accusation that Satan might bring against us, he ever lives to make intercession for thee. So that whatever the devil accuses us of, and accusations are one thing and proof is something else, accusation is one thing and bringing judgment is something else, let the devil accuse. He doesn't have any power beyond that. He cannot condemn us. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, and Paul says, yea, rather that is risen again. He not only died, but he's risen again. And he's on the right hand of God. Let the devil just kick up his heels and have a good time accusing. He's not going to do anything in the way of condemnation. He cannot condemn you. He would like to. But it's not in his power to do so. And Christ is going to see to it that he saves us to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for them. I like that. So that's the sixth thing, a result of justification. Let me give you something else quickly. If you look back in Romans again, chapter 5 and verse 11, here is the certainty of eternal salvation again. It says, 
And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. The word there, if you have a marginal reference, it's the reconciliation or reconciliation. Actually, it's not the Old Testament word for atonement, meaning to cover over and cover up, but it means the New Testament word atonement means reconciliation here. This is the only time you find it in the New Testament, by the way. And it's the same as 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. God has reconciled us. That's the guarantee and the certainty of our eternal salvation, that Christ has reconciled us to God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says, and he's even given us the ministry, hasn't he, of reconciliation. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, <clears throat> this is how it was done, that God, continuing reading, verse 19, that God was in Christ, and he was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing or counting their trespasses unto them. That through what Jesus did on the cross, that God does not even count our trespasses, the fact that we're lawbreakers, the fact that we're sinners. He's not going to count that to us anymore because he's reconciled us to God, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, so that what we can tell the sinner is this, that if he'll put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has already reconciled us to God. And therefore, he will be in, in harmony with God. He'll be brought back to God by putting his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It says on verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. He says, We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. So he's given us, we are, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation in verse 18. We're ambassadors in verse 20, and we're to try to beseech and pray that people be reconciled to God because the Lord Christ is in their place. He is reconciled. For he, his, here's the reason, the way it was done. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Christ took our sins upon himself that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's how we're reconciled to God, isn't it? Through Christ's death, through his substitutionary work, he has reconciled us to God. That's the certainty of eternal salvation. You know, I believe the Bible would show us then these sevenfold results in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Peace with God, access to God, assurance of heavenly glory, Recipients of God's love, no wrath to fear, a complete salvation, and certainty of eternal salvation. Now then, we're going to continue with our studies, and I'd like for us to pick up with verse 6 again and just read the verses that we missed some of the important things. We've given you the assets of the believer. We've given you the seven results of justification. And now, verse 6, we'll take it verse by verse. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, that means that we had no strength to save ourselves. That means that we were then ungodly. That means that we are ungodly without Christ, without God, ungodly. And that it says in due time, just at the proper time and in the fullness of time, Christ died 
for us when we were without strength and when we were ungodly. Now then, by way of contrast, it says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. We find among men that it's very seldom that for a righteous man one would lay down his life. It's been known to be. But scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, right in contrast of you and I dying or taking the place of another that was righteous or good, which might be done and has been done, but in contrast to that, God commended his love for us, toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He died for us, not because we were righteous, not because we were good men, <coughs> but while we were yet sinners. He didn't die for the good. He died for the evil. He died for the unrighteous. He died for the ungodly. He died for the sinners. That's why Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As long as a man thinks he's good, or as long as a man thinks he's righteous within himself, or as long as a man thinks that he can save himself, he's not the one Jesus died for. He must consider himself to be a sinner. He must recognize that he is unrighteous. He must recognize that he's ungodly. He must recognize that he does not deserve the grace of God. And then, when we put ourselves, and by the way, you do that, you put yourself in that place, more so even as a Christian. You come back to that place every day, and you say, I'm not worthy of being saved by grace. I'm not worthy of the salvation that Jesus paid for, for me on the cross. You say, I am, like Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And the closer you draw to the Lord, the more sinful and and more you'll realize that you're not worthy. The closer you come to God, the worse you'll think of yourself. You'll really realize that it, all of it depends upon the Lord. When the fellow lifts up himself and, and feels himself to be worthy of all these blessings, he's getting at a distance from God. You see, the, the, the publican, he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went down to his house. The Bible says he went down justified rather than the other fellow. The other fellow, I'm sure, was telling the truth. That old proud Pharisee, what was he saying? He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Well, now, God knew all about that. And I don't believe he was lying about it. But see, he was proud of it. He thought this ought to merit some, some goodness. in the. This ought to merit God's favor. <clears throat> this ought to make God real proud of him. But it didn't because the man was filled with pride. And the Bible tells us that God resisteth the proud, but he give us, give us grace to the humble. So you see, we have to put ourselves, even as Christians, back again constantly in the position of saying, I'm chiefest of sinners. I don't deserve the blessings of God. And if we'll be honest with ourselves, we'll not only say it, but we'll really mean it, because we can see that old carnal nature rising up and we'll say, Within me, within my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, as Paul said. Just about the time we think we've attained something and, and grown a little bit in grace, we'll see that old sinful carnal nature come up and we'll say, My, I didn't know I was that wicked, but now I realize it. But then we put ourselves back in our position in Christ and we'll say He is more. He's made us meet to be worthy of the inheritance of the saints in life. In Christ, we're worth all of it. But in ourselves, we're not worth anything. But in Christ, we're deserving of all the richest blessings from God. The Bible tells us, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things?
So we're deserving of all the blessings that come upon us, but because of what Jesus did for us, not because of anything that we've done. We need to realize that. Going with verse uh, 9, much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We're justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His death on the cross and the shedding of his blood brought about for us and bought for us justification. And then, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We've already expounded that. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. We're already reconciled to God. We have the certainty of eternal salvation. Verse 12, and through the rest of the chapter, we see how it was and how it is that we're totally depraved. And with, apart from what we've been preaching and teaching on justification, we would be completely separated from God. In verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We're sinners because of Adam. We're sinners by nature. Not because of what we have done, but because of what we are. And then, later on, we do sin and transgress the law of God. But if we never did that, we would still be sinners because we're born of sinful parents. But we do sin because we are born of sinful parents, you see? Because we have that sinful nature within. And it came by one man, and the Bible teaches us, and death by this sin of Adam. For that all have sinned. Some people deny the depravity of mankind. And they think that he's climbing the ladder to heaven, you know. He's getting better and better all the time. But if you look about you, I think you'll see we're getting worse and worse all the time by nature, won't you? Just look about and you'll see. I see things in this day and hour that when I was smaller and younger, small boy, maybe earlier in life, that I didn't realize even existed. And I believe that we can all testify to the fact that there's more evil today and more uh, uh, outward open evil and sinfulness on every hand than we've ever known in our whole lifetime. And if you don't believe it, just get out and look around. I know you believe because you see it. And we ought to be bringing messages like this, that God is going to judge this sinful world, that God has called upon the wicked and sinful man to repent and turn to him by faith, because men are sinners. I used to preach a message on when God's patience wears out. Back in the days of Lot, God's patience came to an end with those wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, didn't he? And he brought judgment and fire and brimstone out of heaven. Even before that, in the days of Noah, God's patience came to an end with, a, with an ungodly world. And he saved Noah, the eighth person. Eight people were saved from that wicked world in Noah's day. You go on down in uh, Nineveh. Jonah preached to that wicked city, and they repented. We find in Belshazzar's day, there was wickedness. And God's patience came to an end with that kingdom. And he took it away and turned it over to the Medes and Persians. The Bible tells us in the New Testament, Peter says, If God spared not the angels that sinned, and he spared not Noah and the old world, he's able to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished, just as sure today. So God is going to judge sin and evil. But where did he judge it as far as you're concerned? There it brings us back to our text, justification. He judged it in Jesus Christ. The judgment that Jesus bore for my sins will never have to be brought up again for me personally. They'll never have to be brought up again for you. You know why? It's already done. It's settled. He's reconciled us to God and you're exempt from that great 
white throne judgment wherein the wicked dead stuff shall stand before there, that white throne judgment. And this is one thing you ought to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We won't go on any further, but we'll pick up with verse 13, the Lord willing, in our next lesson. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. Let us stand together, please, for a word of prayer.